Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Geoffrey Owen, and I have the pleasure of uh, chairing this, this evening's session and introducing our speaker, Lord Sainsbury. As many of you will know, Lord Sainsbury has had a remarkable career straddling the worlds of business, government, and philanthropy. He worked for many years for the company that bears his family name, J. Sainsbury PLC. In fact, some of you may not know that the first Sainsbury shop was opened in 1869, a few yards from here in Drury Lane, selling high-quality milk as his main, uh, main uh, asset. Um, he held a number of senior jobs in Sainsbury's finance director, and then he served as chairman between 1992 and 1998. I think at the end of that year, during that year, he was appointed Minister of Science and Innovation in Tony Blair's Labour government, and he held that post until 2006. Now, during that period and subsequently, since leaving that uh, job, he's been deeply interested in issues that are absolutely central to today's debate about the future of the British economy. How to make better use of the UK's great strengths in academic science, how to promote innovation, how to remove the obstacles that stand in the way of a more innovative, more productive economy. His thoughts on these topics are, are, are set out in an important book that he's just published, Progressive Capitalism, How to Achieve Economic Growth, Liberty, and Social Justice. Some of you may have seen uh, copies of the book outside the uh, lecture room, and Lord Sainsbury will be happy to sign copies at the, at the end of the session when we finish it at, at 8 o'clock. Given the uncertainties about the British economy and indeed about British politics, this book could hardly be more timely. And we very much look forward to hearing Lord Sainsbury setting out some of the themes that he explores in that book. He's going to talk for uh, about 25 minutes or half an hour or so. The two of us will then have a, a brief um, dialogue for perhaps another 15 minutes before opening the floor to the audience, and we will continue until, uh, until 8 o'clock. So uh, could I ask Lord Sainsbury to come and talk to us? Uh, Jeffrey, thank you very much uh, for those kind words. I think if um, one inflicts another book on economics uh, on the public, uh, you have to have a very good excuse for doing this. There are plenty out there, and why do you need another one? Um, I have two excuses. The first is that a lot of books have been written uh, recently on the financial crash uh, of 2008, on the end of neoliberalism, and so on. But I think no one, as far as I know, has written up about an alternative political economy, that is an alternative view 
uh, of the role of the state in the economy, uh, and that's what my book see uh, seeks to do. Uh, secondly, if you look at most books on political economy, they set out uh, a political economy or they seek to attack another political economy. Uh, they very rarely go from this is uh, the political economy we're recommending or attacking and the consequences of this are uh, the following in policy terms. In my book, uh, the first half, I try and put forward an alternative political economy and then the second half, um, I explain how this might be used uh, to produce better policies for the UK at this present time. Let me just say this, probably this is one place uh, which I will be talking at in these days where I don't need uh, necessarily to explain what neoliberalism is, but just so there's no um, misunderstanding of this, uh, neoliberalism that I'm talking about is really a combination of two things, uh, neoclassical economic thinking plus a very strong kind of libertarian streak and a belief that governments really can't pursue the public interest or can't promote the public interest uh, because everyone who's part of the government is pursuing uh, their own self-interest. That's what I mean by neoliberalism. Having said that, um, I have to say that during the eight years um, I was a minister in the DTI, I very much subscribed, like practically everyone in government, like practically uh, the whole of the academic world, like practically the whole of the business community, uh, essentially to a neoliberal view uh, of the day. And I believed as a whole government was doing pretty well, the economy seemed to be growing uh, and be very buoyant, uh, and everything seemed to be moving along very smoothly. And it was only after I left government uh, that three events caused me really to start uh, thinking uh, as to whether uh, we had been on the right lines or whether there were major flaws uh, in this particular political economy we were following. Uh, first of all, I came out of government. Uh, I left government in November 2006. And uh, I then uh, was not allowed uh, to talk to any financial advisors for three months. Um, on the rather bizarre argument that having been a member of the DTI, I was privy to a lot of really useful information uh, which would enable me to make lots of money on the stock market. Uh, if you knew anything about uh, the information we had in the DTI, this was very, a very improbable situation. But in any case, uh, it was only in about March, April 2007 that I came out of government and I talked to uh, the financial advisors who I hadn't talked to for eight years because all my investments had to be in a blind trust. And um, after, after they pointed out that they'd made a lot more money while I was in government and unable to interfere in matters, uh, they then said, uh, we are quite worried about what's happening uh, in financial markets. We think the whole thing uh, has become too complicated and people have lost control of what they're doing. And there's also this thing called subprime mortgages uh, which is a small cloud on the horizon but we think could turn into something very big. And I remember thinking at the time, uh, you know, do I go and talk to um, Alastair or Gordon and tell them that it doesn't look outside uh, the same as appears to look uh, in the Treasury or the DTI? And then I thought that's ridiculous. Of course, uh, they should know. Um, uh, that again was, was a fairly obvious mistake. The second thing uh, that made me think about uh, these issues was that there was a private equity bid 
uh, for the family business. Um, and this was, a, I thought, an extraordinary situation uh, because there was no attempt uh, to say, we will take over this company and improve its performance. Uh, they basically said, um, we will keep the management, we think it's been well run, uh, we think uh, uh, we will keep its capital expenditure program, we will keep its strategy, we'll keep all these things. Uh, all we'll do is we'll buy the company, we'll strip out all the property, uh, which we'll sell, we will stuff the company with debt, and then we'll put it back on the market, uh, forgetting to tell people of the risks involved in this, and walk away with a billion pounds. And that seemed to me uh, was something which was completely uh, dysfunctional as far as uh, financial markets are concerned, and a classic example not of wealth creation, uh, but simply wealth appropriation. It's not about creating wealth, it's simply about transferring wealth from one person to the other uh, without any contribution uh, to innovation or wealth creation. Um, the third uh, instant which obviously affected my thinking was the financial crash uh, of 2008 because it seemed to me that as governments rushed around uh, frantically trying to save the world's financial system, it was simply not intellectually possible uh, to go on saying that markets uh, are self-correcting, self-regulating, and there is no role for government. Uh, clearly, uh, it was not a, you could not any longer uh, sustain that point of view. And so what I thought uh, we needed to do at this point was to rethink uh, the political economy that we had had um, over all those years and produce a new uh, progressive political economy, which I've called progressive capitalism. At this point, I think I need to say um, uh, what I mean by capitalism, uh, because, as I'm sure you know, you can read many books about the origins of capitalism, varieties of capitalism, the future of capitalism, and not ever get a very clear definition uh, of what you mean by capitalism. I think you can define it uh, by two features. Uh, the first feature uh, is that the majority of productive assets are actually held by individuals, and they're held by individuals, and that is seen as a good thing, because individuals uh, will take uh, greater care about uh, the productive use of those assets. So that's the first feature of capitalism. The second is that it is a system uh, where the production uh, is guided and the income is distributed largely through the operation of markets. Now, this is important because an absolute cornerstone of the case I'm making for progressive uh, capitalism is a firm belief in capitalism. Uh, some people, I think, uh, would like to say this is a book which is an attack on capitalism. Uh, it doesn't, it should be in a way seen as a defense of capitalism uh, because what it's saying is there are flaws in the model of capitalism we have at the moment, uh, but these are not inherent in it. These are flaws which can be corrected, and capitalism still remains uh, the best economic system uh, that we have. At the same time, progressive capitalism uh, includes three uh, beliefs, uh, of defining beliefs, I would describe them as, uh, of, progressive cap of progressive thinking. Uh, the first of these is the crucial role of institutions, uh, the second is the need for the state 
to be involved in the design of institutions in order to resolve conflicting interests and provide uh, public uh, goods. And the third is the use of social justice, which I define as fairness, as an important measure of a country's economic performance. So it's those three uh, defining beliefs of progressivism uh, which are very important into the argument. I think a great mistake of neoclassical economists uh, is not to see uh, that capitalism is a socio-economic system. It's a great mistake because if you look at uh, the growth of different countries at different times across the world, uh, if you look at the empirical studies, what you will see is that at least four kinds of institutions uh, have been enormously important uh, in determining that level of growth and speed of growth. And if you just rule those out of uh, your models of capitalism, uh, then they'd have very little, uh, if any, predictive value. Those four institutions uh, are, first of all, the institutions which underpin financial and labor markets, the institutions uh, which underpin the governance of firms, a country's education and training system, and its national system of innovation. National system of innovation being the network of institutions in the public and private sectors whose activities and interventions initiate, import, modify, and diffuse new technologies. For example, uh, when Mrs. Thatcher changed uh, the industrial relations uh, law in this country, she didn't return it to some natural state, some basic primitive natural state. She simply changed uh, the rules and the regulations uh, in a way which, depending on your political view, made it more unfair or more fair uh, to, to everyone. So that was a case of a major institutional change uh, and obviously uh, an extremely important one. I think also uh, that uh, the performance um, of any company is very much affected uh, by the way that it's governed. Whether it takes a long-term investment view or focuses solely on quarterly uh, results, and whether it's prepared to put resources into training young people, uh, and depends on how uh, well it's governed and its relationship with shareholders. And I believe that in, in spite of Cadbury report, uh, and the masses of, well, the number of reports uh, that that original report spurned, spawned, uh, we have actually a, a system of corporate governance today uh, in this country which does not work uh, very well. In fact, I think you can see that some parts of it uh, are very largely out of control. Uh, I'd give two examples of that. The first is simply the pay of executives. Uh, whether it's at the right level or not, uh, it can be debated, but it seems to me it's very clearly uh, out of control and not related in it, as it should be to performance. Uh, for example, while I was in government, that's between uh, roughly 1999 and 2006, uh, the, the salaries earned by the chief executive of FTSE 100 companies rose every year uh, by 11%. Uh, while at the same time, uh, most full-time employees were getting increases of about 1.4%, 1.1% uh, per year in that period. Uh, and I don't think you can look back and say the performance of companies uh, over that period uh, increased at that kind of rate. 
And what that was due to was uh, some badly designed uh, compensation schemes which related it to uh, a, a very buoyant uh, market uh, and that was allowed to run and give these huge increases. Uh, and I think also if you look at uh, what's happening to our companies, it's quite clear that they're taking more and more short-term view uh, and not investing for the long term. And that again is, I think, a sign that our governance of companies uh, has become uh, rather dysfunctional. And in my book, I make some suggestions um, about how I might try and do that, deal with that, and bring uh, essentially the investors and the shareholders uh, once again closer and in touch with the companies. Because what we've seen uh, in recent years uh, is uh, a vast growth of intermediation between investors on the one hand and the companies on the other. Um, so that, for example, uh, if you say to an asset manager today, um, I want you to take an interest and to vote the shares of a company, uh, they will say uh, that's an extra charge. That's not what we normally do. Uh, and this seems to me a breakdown on what is a fundamental part of capitalism, which is the linkage between the people who own the productive assets uh, and the managers of the company. Just to give you another example um, of uh, an institution which I think um, uh, works incredibly badly in this country and has done for 100 years, and that is our system for training technicians. Uh, you will probably know that the first reports which said Germany has much better technicians uh, than this country, the uh, first report comes from uh, Prince Albert. Um, and for the last hundred years, we have had endless reports uh, that uh, the technician system doesn't work. And that's not because our young people are lazy uh, or not well motivated. It's because we do not have a proper system uh, which meets the three needs uh, for good technical education, which are a national standard uh, which works in the marketplace. I, everyone knows that that is, a, that is a national standard. And if you have that qualification and go to a company, uh, they value that and will take you on as opposed to someone who doesn't, which is obviously essential in any system of qualifications because young people will not work hard to get a qualification if when they take it to an employee, the employee says, I really couldn't care less whether you've got it. So the first thing is a national standard which works in the marketplace. Secondly, you have to find a way of paying young people while they get these qualifications. And thirdly, you have to have places and teachers who can teach them uh, the knowledge of skills. And in this country, in spite of all these efforts and, and reports, we have none of those three things uh, which are essential and which is very important in terms uh, of our economic performance. Uh, the second, uh, the second um, defining belief of progressive thinking um, is that the state has to be involved in the design and reform of a country's institutions. Uh, institutions do not evolve spontaneously um, as neoliberals believe. Uh, the state has to be involved uh, because there are conflicting interests in the participants uh, in markets and also in other cases uh, there are public goods which the state has to uh, provide. Um, you can think of any number of examples of uh, cases where um, there are conflicting interests. Um, 
uh, while I was in the DTI, I had to take um, the 2006 company bill through the House of Lords. Um, that is, um, which took some 72 hours of debate. Um, it changed very little, but it took two 72 hours of debate. The main debate, of course, is about uh, the, res the, the responsibility and accountabilities um, of, on the one hand, the investors, and the other, uh, the managers of the company. And that is very closely regulated, um, as it has to be. Uh, and again, there can be issues um, as which way uh, it should be done. I think at this point, it, I also need to say that um, this role of the state is very different, however, from what one would call the command and control role of traditional uh, uh, socialism. It's not about saying, the state saying, this is how you should run your company, uh, this is what you should be doing, and it's not about national planning or anything. Uh, it is just simply the state has to create the rules, the organizations, the institutions uh, which underpin uh, a market economy. And of course, in the, uh, so what it really is, is an enabling state. It's not either command and control of traditional socialism, uh, nor is it uh, an example of the minimalist state of neoliberalism. It is an enabling uh, state which creates the conditions uh, which are necessary for companies uh, to grow and flourish. So it's not looking back nostalgically to clause for socialism, uh, nor to ne neoliberalism. Progressive capitalism, I think, is also a very useful way uh, for policymakers and politicians to look at uh, the world for, for two reasons. Firstly, I think it gives a very clear description of what the role of the state is uh, in the economy. One of the most extraordinary features of, of uh, the current political scene uh, is that we have now uh, the Secretary of State uh, talking about an industrial strategy. The CBI has suddenly uh, decided that we must have industrial policy and the TUC continues uh, to have uh, a, a belief that industrial policy uh, is very important. Um, what is extraordinary about this is when I was in the DTI, um, if as a junior minister you'd said we ought to have an industrial policy, uh, you would have been taken outside and shot um, on the basis that this is not the sort of thing that New Labour did. Uh, and of course you would have come under virulent attack uh, from the CBI on the basis that uh, picking winners is what uh, the Labour Party did in the old days. Um, it is totally to be deplored. And suddenly we've turned round. Now I think it's no clearer uh, to most of us if you read the literature uh, what actually an industrial policy is. Um, people are just in favour of it. Um, I think if you think about uh, the issues I've been talking about, like national innovation systems, corporate governance, uh, the education and training system, uh, or indeed the institutions which underpin financial labour markets, uh, there is a very clear role uh, for what government should do, um, and I think it's, that is the basis of the role of the state if you want to call that industrial policy, you can. It does no harm, but you should be very clear uh, about what it is that you're talking about. I think uh, progressive capitalism also uh, can help one to understand and in future prevent uh, some of the things that have gone on in recent years 
particularly the exploitation of pension funds and investors uh, by asset managers, uh, as has happened in recent years. If you look back uh, over the 40 years uh, before uh, 2000, you'll find that um, uh, the annual return to pension funds was a real return of about 5%. Uh, if you look at the returns, uh, inflation adjusted returns between 2000 uh, and 2009, you'll see it's 1.1%. So it's 1.1% compared to 5% for the 40 years before. Now, you can, you can give all sorts of excuses for this. You can say, well, you know, you have good decades and bad decades, and uh, though a decade in these terms is quite a long time. Uh, but if you look at what was the profit and financial return of asset managers during this period, of course, it was, it's never been higher. So you have a miserable return to pension funds and investors, huge profits being made uh, by the asset uh, managers. Um, and this seems to me an uh, extraordinary uh, situation. In fact, just before 2008, 40% uh, of corporate profits uh, will be made by the financial sector. And under no circumstances, it seems to me that can be justified. Uh, what was, how did this come about? Well, it has a lot to do uh, with the charges that asset managers make of pension funds uh, and investors. Uh, these can range between 1% and 3%. Uh, it's incredibly difficult to get hold of the figures because asset managers uh, are very keen to keep these figures to themselves and it's very difficult to, to get a handle on them. Uh, but they range roughly from 1% to 3%. Uh, this may not seem very important um, until you work out uh, that if it goes from 1% to 2%, uh, over a 25-year life pension, uh, that will reduce the final pension by 20%. So these are very significant figures. Uh, and I think it's a breakdown uh, of our financial system uh, that this was allowed uh, to, to happen. Uh, it was, I think the situation was well described by one investor who said, um, I knew I couldn't take the money uh, with me uh, when I died, but at least I thought it would be there when I retired. And, and that is the situation uh, that we, we've had. And in my book, I talk about the ways uh, that you might be able to make certain that actually investors and pension funds uh, had proper information uh, about what was going on. And I talk about a shareholders advisory board um, as being a way uh, of dealing with this, as well as, of course, uh, transparency. So what I've been saying, I think, can be summed up fairly simply. Progressive capitalism is based on a firm belief in capitalism uh, and the three defining beliefs of progressive thinking are that institutions are important, the state has to be involved in the design and reform of those institutions, social justice defined as fairness is an important measure of economic performance, and the enabling state rather than command and control state or minimalist state is the desirable one. Progressive capitalism, I think, will be dismissed by people on the extreme right and people on the extreme left on the basis that they will want to hold on to their ideological certainties. Uh, but I believe there are a lot of people uh, in industry, government, uh, professions, and even in financial markets uh, who will see that progressive capitalism is the way forward and will demand the future government 
uh, return, uh, reform are dysfunctional institutions or economic institutions where they are dysfunctional so that they deliver economic growth, liberty and social justice. Finally, um, as The Great Gatsby is a favourite book of mine and as it's getting some attention at the moment, uh, let me end with one, I think, a brilliant quotation from Scott Fitzgerald from that book. And he says, They were careless people, Tom and Daisy. They smashed up things and creatures and then retreated back into their money or their vast carelessness or whatever it was that kept them together and let other people clean up the mess that they had made. And I saw that quoted in a book about bankers and the financial crash, and it seemed to me that's a very good description of what happened in the financial crash. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. There are lots of interesting themes uh, that I'm sure people in the audience will want to uh, ask Lord Sainsbury about. And I'm going to start the, the proceedings by just raising a few issues and perhaps asking Lord Sainsbury to go maybe a little bit further on some of the matters that you, you touched on. So perhaps I could start with the issue of corporate governance, which you, you mentioned, and, and um, relations between shareholders and boards of directors and the worry about uh, short-termism, that uh, boards are under pressure to um, meet quarterly earnings targets and, and neglect long-term investment. So what can we do about it? What, 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 is, um, uh, what are kind of realistic reforms that would, at any rate, reduce the extent of short-termism in the system, do you think? Well, I, th I think it comes back to this issue of you, you've got to bring the investors and the company together. Uh, and they become totally remote. Uh, pension funds hands over its shares to asset managers to manage. The asset managers are turning them over merrily uh, and investing on what actually is a zero-sum game, because if one investment manager does better, the other does worse. And actually, the only way they can improve the performance of companies is by actually removing bad management, uh, keeping control of, uh, the, the salary levels, making certain that they have a long-term strategy. And they, of course, do none of that. Because if you're trading shares um, and you hold them for six minutes, or which is kind of quite long these days, or uh, three months, you're not remotely interested in those issues. So you've got to bring them back. Um, I think the first thing is to, make, is to get the investors in the pension funds to start saying to the asset managers... Uh, we're contracting to you on the basis, A, you're not churning the shares all the time, because that doesn't help us, uh, but you are taking an interest in the performance of, of the companies. And then um, uh, I think there's a very good, very neat little mechanism in Sweden where they have nomination committees which uh, nominate essentially the non-executives and the chairman of the company and this is not a subcommittee of the board as we have it here, which is, of course, a nonsense. Uh, it's, a, it's, actually, it's actually voted on by the AGM. So the, the nomination committee is a servant of the AGM, the shareholders, not a subcommittee of the board. And this is a very good way for major shareholders uh, to make their views known and take action. Whereas today, if you're going to do that, you've got to try and find some like-minded investors 
uh, get along to, uh, along to talk to the managers and so on. I think this is where you could do that. Do, do you think, I think that one of your suggestions in the book, if I remember rightly, is, is that there might be a case for giving long-term shareholders more voting power. Do, do you think that's a, a possible way forward? Well, I, I, think, um, I think one of the uh, things that also has gone wrong is, is using uh, takeovers too much uh, in these situations. Uh, now, there's a very good reason why you have lots of takeovers. Uh, the reason we have lots of takeovers um, is essentially uh, you can make an absolute fortune out of this if you're an investment manager. So in the case I mentioned of um, the takeover for Sainsbury's, uh, that eventually was seen off because the family uh, thought it would endanger the long-term uh, health of the business because it would, it would be loaded up with debt. Um, and so we don't, want to, we don't want to take part in this. And at that point, uh, the investment bankers on both sides lined up and said, there was a great plea, you must do this, it's a wonderful deal, uh, it will be great for the company. And I remember thinking afterwards, uh, you know, why are they quite so uh, enthusiastic about this? And then someone pointed out to me there was 100 million pounds of fees on the table. If the deal didn't go through, they got nothing. And if it went through, they, went, they got 100 million. Um, for, I have to say, not a great deal of work. Um, and in those cases, you do say there have just been too many takeovers. The deal-making became the, the end of this. Um, and I would like to see less takeovers. I think it's a rotten way to replace a management of a company. If you, they're, they're good, you get rid of them. Uh, but that's how we do it in this country too often with takeovers. And the way I – I wouldn't want to stop takeovers, but I just think you want to put a bit of dirt in the wheels to make it more difficult. And two ways you can do that is to make uh, – a, a, have a higher requirement for acceptances – in the target company. And the other way um, is to say, unless you can't vote unless you've held the share for two years. Um, and that, I think, um, makes it more difficult. It doesn't rule it out if really people want to do it. It just makes it more difficult. Right. Okay, now, a different topic. You were very much involved when you were in government with science, innovation, new science-based businesses and so on. And I think during that period of the Blair and, and Brown government, at least up to the financial crisis, a lot of people thought that um, things were going rather well and, and that the Labour government was um, providing all kinds of incentives for entrepreneurs to start new businesses, getting more money into venture capital and so on, encouraging universities to, to spin off um, uh, new firms. So... What more needs to be done? If there's, a, if there's a continuing weakness in that area, um, what, what additional steps could be taken to, um, to get more businesses, more high-growth science-based businesses, do you think? Well, I, I think we did do a lot, and I think as a whole um, it was pretty successful. I mean, if you look at, for example, the number of spin-off companies, not just spin-off companies, but any kind of knowledge transfer, licensing, uh, doing projects for companies, over that period it was transformed. So it went from something like 70 spin-off companies a year uh, to 250. But all those areas, licensing and everything else, uh, improved. And towards the end, well, when I wrote, I wrote a report for the government after I'd left called The Race to the Top. And we had some work uh, done for that, comparing 
uh, British universities against three top American universities in terms of uh, the amount of knowledge transfer. Um, Stanford, of course, still remains right at the top. But other than that, uh, British universities now do pretty well on those measures against uh, their American counterparts. Um, I still think there's more you can do, uh, and there's certainly a lot more you can do um, in those areas, uh, whether it's the use of R&D funds of government departments. Um, the technology strategy board we set up um, has been a great success, but it should actually probably um, at least have 75% more money into it. Um, and there are various other things. I mean, we got the coalition got rid of the regional development agencies. Uh, the truth is they weren't very good, but actually what should have happened uh, is they should have been reformed uh, because you do need to have some kind uh, of regional uh, organization to, to uh, do um, technology policy in the regions. And LEPs are, you know, um, they, well, they don't have any powers and they don't have any money and they don't have any people. But other than that, they're great. <laughs> okay. You mentioned Stanford just then, and, and I think in your book, and you've sort of touched on it in your remarks, you, you, you talk about different varieties of capitalism, and, and uh, particularly, say, the German approach uh, con contrasted yeah. with the U.S. approach. Now, at the moment, we seem to be going through a period when Germany is the model we should uh, be imitating, whereas, I don't know, 10 years ago, America was the model. Um, and I, I wondered, what can we learn from these, from these models? Obviously, Germany has immense strength in manufacturing industry. On the other hand, the United States seems to be um, ahead of the game in, in starting new businesses and so on. So um, uh, what, if anything, can we learn from studying these different, these different types? Um, I think if you, look at, if you look at it over the um, period since the war, um, uh, every so often we sort of lose confidence in our model and we then look at whatever country is doing well at that point um, and say we must be more like them. So I think it was originally French planning was the, yeah. the smart thing after war. Uh, then, of course, we all thought Germ uh, Japan was the great place. And I, I, was, I, mean, I went there a couple of times in the 1980s and I thought this was fantastic and this is what we should be doing. Um, what, of course, I didn't even remotely know, understand, was it had a kind of uh, capitalism which is very socially determined and institutionally determined, uh, and there's no way you can, can bring that to, to England. Uh, then, of course, um, but we all thought that. I mean, the Americans spent a lot of time thinking, how can we be more Japanese in the, the, the 80s? Then, of course, uh, the Japanese co uh, economy uh, in 1990 goes in steep decline, at which point the Japanese start talking about how they can be more like the American economy. Um, and there's a lot of stuff on that which produces no more results uh, than the Americans trying to be like the Japanese. Um, and now, of course, uh, we all, you know, Germany is doing quite well, uh, so we all start talking about Germany. Uh, the fact is there are different kinds of capitalism. We, we simply cannot copy a lot of things from Germany because a lot of it depends on uh, having very good trade associations and very good trade unions who actually do quite a lot of, of the management of the economy. So if you look at technical education, 
technical education, the standards, the way it's run, is essentially run by trade unions and trade associations uh, working together. And the trade associations uh, are properly structured. So you have a structure of, of a series of trade unions, and then they come together in, in major bodies. And if the major body says, we will agree to wage increases of 3%, that's what all the companies do, uh, and the trade unions will follow the trade union leadership. There is no way we can produce such, such a system. We have 300 and, I think 3,600 trade associations. Um, our trade unions, neither our trade association trade unions, uh, can make their members deliver on anything. So we had in the 60s, we had tripart discussions. Um, people would agree, great difficulty, agree something, but then no, no one paid any attention. So I think what comes out of that is... Uh, you should look at what other countries do, but only try and copy from uh, countries which have a kind of capitalism which is rather similar to your own. And that's, that's for us, that, that usually is America. And we copied quite a few things uh, in the Labour government. Uh, something called the SBRI system, which is about supporting small businesses with research grants from government. Hugely successful in America. Uh, with a great deal of effort, we got it into this country, and it's now producing quite well. So I think you copy, but only copy from someone who's roughly got the same kind of capitalism. Okay. One last question then, um, which perhaps is an unfair one, I'm not sure. But you, you mentioned industrial policy has come back into, yes. into vogue, at least rhetorically. Right. Um, uh, what do you understand by industrial policy? What sort of industrial policy would you like to see? Well, I think it's all the things I was talking about. I mean, you've got to make certain that the labor markets and the financial markets have the right institutional underpinning to deal with some of the issues I've mentioned. Uh, you've got to make certain that uh, your governance system is working. Uh, you've got to make certain that your national system of innovation, which is research institutes, universities, uh, knowledge transfer mechanisms, your patenting system, all those are working efficiently. And you need to make certain your education and training system um, sometimes those will be horizontal policies. Uh, they apply to all industries. Uh, but obviously, if you're talking about technology policy, uh, you want to have technology policies uh, for different industries, and you want to put those efforts into particular ones which you think where will have the most effect. And the same is true of education, education training, some horizontal policies, some sectoral policies. If you start on that kind of basis, then I think you can, you can have something... Uh, which is clear and makes sense, whereas just talking about industrial policy as being we want to do something uh, to get growth going doesn't seem to be very helpful. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, well, now I'd like to invite questions from the audience, and could I ask uh, questioners to say who they are and their affiliation, if they could, and, and keep the questions um, sharp and short? Yes. Hi, uh, I'm uh, Tony Richards. I'm just a student. Um, yeah, um, you mentioned uh, varieties of capitalism. That's that's kind of my focus in, in my studies as well. Um, um, you mention um, you sort of you you dismiss um, the German elements of the German models, uh, specifically with regards to trade unions and and using those as a means of of training um, future apprentices. Um, what 
what would you then propose in that place? If, if, that, if that model can't be copied, then what would you propose in that place? And one of the other elements of the German model is um, there is a different type of welfare state. So in this country, the welfare state is designed to protect the, the low-income earners. But in Germany, it protects the high-income earners, which gives people an incentive to uh, train in specific skills because they might be greatly rewarded and market fluctuations will mean that they won't be penalised if the, if the market changes. So would you, would you support that latter part? And what, what would you do to create a training infrastructure in absence of, of that element of the German model? Um, I, 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 you make me very happy. I'll go back and tell my wife uh, that I met another person who was interested in the varieties of capitalism. Because uh, it's not often one finds someone else interested in the subject. Um, uh, The industrial training thing, um, I think you actually have to be rather creative in this. Um, And because we can't do it in the way the Germans do it. Um, But I'm involved in a scheme where we're we're trying to do something different. And what we're trying to do uh, is use professional bodies uh, to be the people who set the standards for the industrial training. The the reason we haven't got a national standard um, is because... It has to do these two things. It has to be reflect the market. It has to work in the marketplace. And it has to be a national standard. So what we do in this country is sometimes we say the government will produce a national standard, which it does. Uh, invariably, it has no relationship to what is needed by business. So we get rid of that. And then we have one which is done by bi- We say, that we've got to get business to do it. So it relates to the need of business. But business hasn't got the expertise to produce national standards. Uh, so you get a few standards, but they apply only to particular companies, and they're not transferable skills. This is all about transferable skills. Um, and so what we're going to try and what we're in the process of trying to do is use professional bodies. So you've got all the engineering institutions, for example, uh, and get them to produce uh, what we call a reg- registered technician skill, which will be common uh, across the board. Uh, and you, it looks as if you can do that across engineering institutions. You can have registered IT people. You can have registered um, people in the National Health Service. Uh, you can apply these things even to areas like um, agriculture, where there's, it turns out there's a huge need uh, for technicians. So you would have a common standard of registered technician. Uh, and by and large, professional bodies are pretty good at making certain it works in the marketplace. Uh, and so that's what we're trying to do at the moment. Um, and it'll be interesting to see whether you can do it. But I think you just have to be creative because you can't do it like the Germans. Okay, there's a question at the back. Just, just first. And then, then I'll come. Yes, please. Um, you talked about social justice as a um, measure of economic performance. Do you see that as a kind of supplement or a replacement for GDP or another measure of economic success? Um, I, think, I think it has, it's another measure of economic success because I think we would all agree if, if, you're, if you're interested in the well-being of society, which is this is what it's all about, uh, I think we could all agree that if you have one, uh, one society which has, say, 3% higher GDP than another one, but in the first one, it's almost all in the top 1%. Uh, I don't, wouldn't call that a better society. I would call the other one, if it's evenly spread, a better 
uh, economic result. The, the, and I think most people agree with that. I think where uh, we need to think differently is left-wing people uh, have tended always to say social justice is equated with equality. And this gets you into terrible difficulties. You can't run a market economy on the basis of equality. Um, it's also not at all clear uh, that this is what people want. Um, so if you've ever been involved in trade union negotiations, you, I would guess you'd never hear people talk about equality. They'll talk about equality between men and women, but they will never talk about equality between jobs. As a whole, because people, people don't think like that. Uh, what they'll talk about a great deal is differentials. What is fair? Um, and I think what has upset people and made people very angry in this recent situation is seeing... I mean, the, the, the one people most made people most angry was uh, seeing bankers. They were actually, well, bankers made a lot of money uh, and it seemed to be doing well. Everyone was reasonably relaxed. Uh, where they became very angry is where the banks collapse, they're bailed out by the government, and then you see all the bonuses gain on. Um, and people quite rightly say this isn't fair. This, this is not a measure of the contribution they're making to the economy. And so while I think people are very relaxed about, you know, someone who builds a business, creates lots of jobs, uh, makes a great company, makes a lot of money, people say, fair enough. Uh, but if people are involved in appropriation of wealth or just uh, having bonus schemes which will give them huge rewards regardless of performance, I think people are very angry. And that's about fairness. People say it's not fair. And so I think we need to talk about social justice, but in the context of fairness, not equality. Okay. Of course, just in front there, if you could. Yeah. Thank you. David Badham, I should confess, sort of banking financial services. Right. Um, two questions, please. First one is, do you think there is an industrial policy that would... Um, protect companies that maybe didn't have the Sainsbury family strength from the sort of takeover that only transferred or destroyed value that you described. And the second one is to do with unintended consequences. One thing you mentioned was, you know, perhaps one would only be able to vote after two years of holding a share. Obviously, the intention is that that makes holding it for longer than that more desirable. Is it not equally likely that people would bail out shortly before two years were up just so that they wouldn't have an additional responsibility, at least if they were asset managers? Uh, well, I think if they are asset managers, that might be right. I think um, the trick here is to make the long-term investors, which is what basically most investors and pension funds are, uh, the people who are more involved in making uh, those decisions. Uh, and I think that um, uh, that's to be encouraged. Of course, there will be people um, who I, I, I think, yeah, who will bail out because, you know, they say, we're, nothing to do with us, we're just um, asset managers and we don't want the extra hassle of all this. Um, okay, let them go, um, is my view. Um, is there a mechanism? Um, I think one other thing I would very much seek to change is we have in this country an um, obsession with the idea that every shareholder should have the sa exactly the same rights. Um, I think if you look um, at company performance, 
uh, you'll find that one of the reasons um, German companies and other countries, some other countries, you'll find very good performance is, uh, on the contrary, that uh, some group of shareholders um, uh, has preferential shares or um, in some way works together as a family or as some organization. And, it, and if that works because they then say we have enough um, reason for actually taking action and doing something. So I think we just want to get away a bit from the everyone has the same, uh, same rights. Um, and if we can do that, you'll find there are more people who say uh, my family or my group or just the three or four major shareholders take a different view. I'll come back in one second. One question from the top there, please. Hi, um, my name's Osman. I'm a postgraduate student here at LSE. Um, I've got three quick questions. Um, what do you think the tax regime or structure would look like, ideally, in a progressive capitalist uh, model, uh, specifically in the UK? Um, the second is you mentioned that the inequity of um, FTSE 100 direct-to-pay um, but how does, say, the UK compete for global, uh, global talent in a global market if, if there was a curb on that in a progressive model? Um, and the third is, uh, how, how is Sainsbury's faring in adopting this kind of approach, if at all? Um, a tax regime, I don't think, I, I don't think there's a particular uh, tax regime that necessarily follows, fr follows uh, from this. Um, on pay, uh, yeah, this of course was the great, great argument. The great argument was, uh, but we have to pay these amounts because we're competing against other people paying these amounts, uh, which was a very convenient argument. Um, of course, the whole point was the whole system was essentially uh, kind of rigged in this way. Um, uh, it, it just had started when I, uh, I left Sainsbury's. It was just beginning to get out of hand. And the particular device which uh, made this happen was uh, remuneration consultants. So there was a great start made of remuneration consultants. Uh, now, the first thing about remuneration consultants is, of course, they know, and you know, uh, that if you're a remuneration consultant and you come along and you say, the whole lot of you are vastly overpaid and there should be no increases, you do not remain remuneration consultant for that business for very long. Uh, well aware of this, they then invented uh, an incredibly simple little trick. The trick was, you come along to the board of directors and the chairman and you say, uh, where do you want your executives, how do you value your executives? Do you want them to be in the top quartile, or the second quartile, or the third quartile, and the fourth quarter, the fourth quarter. Now you have your chief executive with his executives near around him. What is he going to say? He says, Look, I think I have the most wonderful team of people, and they should all be in the top quartile. Occasionally, a very brave chief executive might say it's in the second quartile. No one has ever said it should be in the bottom quartile. So, obviously, you have to bring your people up to the top quartile. Um, then you all go round again. It, the top quartile has, of course, gone up again and the merry ground goes round again and again. And because there's no one representing the shareholders, uh, this happy situation uh, continues. Uh, then you, of course, bring in what has turned out, which I have to say, 
initially you could say sounds quite a good idea, which is you link uh, executive pay to shareholder value. This was the great fashion. Um, so you say, you know, it must be linked to the share price, and therefore you get an alignment between pay of executives and the, sh the shareholder. And if, if the stock market is going up very fast, uh, that gives you huge increases. Um, if it then falls, uh, you say, well, we can't have a situation where uh, our executives have got share options which are underwater, i.e. they're less than the current market price, because they've got to be incentivized. So you re-evaluate re it and you put it down. And all this went on, and that's what gives you these extraordinary, extraordinary increases. Uh, it has very little to do uh, with market forces. Um, Sainsbury's um, has, has a, a fantastically good chief executive, very good chairman, as it had, and it's the same chief executive, the same chairman, as it had when the takeover was, was, took place, and it continues to do extremely well uh, and to be very successful. It would not have been if it had been loaded, up, loaded with debt um, and was always thinking, uh, how can we make so we don't go bust because we've got 90% debt? Okay. Yes, please. Hold on one second. Hold on. I'm Giovanna Dominico. I'm a Italian professor in constitutional law, so I belong to a different sector. Now I'm invited by LC. I appreciate a lot your speech, but uh, I suppose... Uh, Perhaps I don't have understand very well one part, but I have a doubt. Uh, and so I pose this question. Uh, it seems that you've said that uh, progressive capital, you absolve progressive capitalism of every things. On the contrary, you uh, charge a financial system of uh, every illegal behavior, but uh, financial system is the mature son of progressive capitalism. And so I note this contradiction. Would you mind explaining me why? Thanks. So what is the, the contradiction is between... Sorry? So what uh, is the contradiction between, between a view of progressive capitalism which wants to change the institutions of financial markets and the system we have where it breaks down? In my opinion, the contradiction is when you said at the beginning that progressive capitalism has brought wealth, good for everyone. On the contrary, financial system hasn't given good things. But in my opinion, if progressive capitalism has seen the same scene has a financial system, because financial system is a product of a progressive capitalism. That's all. Uh, right. Well, I, I, I think uh, it's a misunderstanding due to my enthusiasm for progressive capitalism, because progressive capitalism doesn't exist. Um, it's something that I, is a model that I've set up. Um, and the, the problem we've had uh, over the last few years is we've had a, essentially a neoliberal view, and this is what has caused the problems. Um, and what I'm arguing for is a different system, which is progressive capitalism, uh, which would treat these problems differently. Does that, that, does that answer the question? So far. Thank you. Okay. Yes, question there, please. I'm 
on. Hi, my name is James and I work in asset management. Um, I was interested on some of your comments on shareholder activism. Um, in light of the move from defined benefit pension schemes and the trustee structure that we have in the UK, where there's already a huge amount of responsibility on trustees and the move towards defined contribution schemes, I'd be interested in your thoughts as to how you actually increase shareholder engagement because it's an incredibly difficult thing to do. And you now have the UK Stewardship Code and ISS voting on behalf of asset managers. So it seems like asset managers are the people best placed to do it. Uh, to, to do what? To, the, to do the stewardship of the... To do the actual voting on behalf of particularly defined contribution pension scheme members, still being the largest segment of the institutional investment market. Yeah, no, I, I mean, you have to, you essentially have to have that. Um, you have to have the asset managers voting the shares. My whole argument is that hasn't been happening uh, because the asset managers say, um, what's in it for us? We're, we're not interested in the performance of the company long term. What we're interested in is, if you're, if you're doing computer trading, what you're interested in is the next five minutes. Uh, and a lot of them are interested in three months, five months. I mean, the turnover now is, what, six months average for a share? And that's a lot of them being turned over very quickly. Uh, they're not interested. And we've got to get back to a system. If you, if you want capitalism to work and you're justifying the fact that productive assets are held by individuals who look after them, you've got to go back to a situation where investors require asset managers as part of their job uh, to take that responsibility seriously. And I think you'll only get it if you, if you have a contract which basically says that's what we require you to do. Do you think that the stewardship code, which the Financial Reporting Council introduced last year, maybe, or the year before, right. are, are you um, optimistic about that? Do you think that's a step in the right direction? Um, or doesn't it amount to much? Well, uh, John Kay, who's probably the best analyst in this field, is very keen on these kind of duties of uh, duties and stewardship duties. I have to say, I may, I may just be very cynical, I just think this is like kind of social responsibility. Um, everyone agrees to it, and does it have any effect? Not much, when it comes to the crunch. Okay. There's one question there, and then I'll come to you. Yes, please. Uh, Daniel Sandelson, I'm a mergers and acquisitions lawyer. Um, do you think there is a case for extending the ability under the Enterprise Act to intervene in mergers and acquisitions on the grounds of public interest? Um, I'm, I'm, as a whole, not very keen on, on this uh, because I think it's um, uh, that in the end comes back to the Secretary of State uh, for Industry and I don't think their record has been very great in, in doing this. And as a whole, um, uh, it's kind of my, part of my philosophy that these sort of things, you don't get decisions being made by the Secretary of State on public interest grounds, uh, because normally that will not be uh, the best grounds. Um, and so I, I think this is one of the reasons why you say, no, this is a capitalist system. This is about uh, the investors. Uh, being the people who, who look at this. Now, there, may, there obviously always are a few real public interest situations uh, which are to do with national security and that sort of thing, 
leaving those aside, I would tend to, to leave it, I'd make it slightly more difficult to do the takeovers, but essentially leave it to the market. Okay. In the same row, just if you could pass the microphone along. Same row as that. Hello. My name is Swami, and I work as a consultant for a payment business. Uh, three questions I'll ask them quickly. Number one, uh, you have command, command economy on one extreme, and you have the market economy on the other extreme. To me, progressive capitalism sort of feels like, in a simplified way, uh, reaching out to the moderate position somewhere in the middle. Uh, am I right in that? Uh, question number two, uh, you included n a number of good things as your solution, uh, you inclu including social justice, but I think... I haven't read the book, but I think you've, uh, you did not mention environmental justice, which is, you know, making sure. Sorry, what which environmental justice. Okay. Um, specifically, what is your opinion about attaching a monetary value to the natural resources, uh, which definitely form a part of uh, uh, the means of production uh, going forward? Do you agree to that or not? Third question. It's an irony that uh, the land which was uh, having the initial models of capitalism, the land of Adam Smith, is now uh, looking to you know, uh, replicate or copy something from Germany or the America. Uh, my question is, uh, why is it um, such a way? And what is Britain's con uh, contribution in the world of capitalism in the past? And what is it looking to contribute uh, to capital uh, capitalism itself in the future? Thank you very much. It's rather a large set of questions. <laughs> um, well, I, I contrast um, progressive capitalism with command and control on one side, traditional socialism, and minimalism on the other. Uh, but I think it's more than just kind of uh, a sort of a compromise in the middle. This is not the third way, uh, which was always kind of, you know, this is a political positioning statement. We'll be neither this or this. Uh, it is that uh, you want the state to have a role, but it's a different role from either of the two other models, and it's a defined role. So one is saying it's not just splitting the difference. This is what we want it uh, to do. Um, the environmental justice, I suspect I should have put something in about this. Um, but I think I thought um, once you say markets are not some kind of abstract thing, they have their rules and regulations and um, costs attached to things, it's very easy to see how you... Uh, take markets and you uh, deal with traditional market failures to do with the environment. So uh, you can either do it by legislation and say just you're not allowed to pollute or if you do pollute you have to pay. Uh, once, you, once you see markets as being institutions that, that's pretty obvious and that's how we in this country are beginning to do this in terms of uh, getting people to produce the energy, the new energy resources of the future. Um, Germany, uh, well, I mean, we did, we were the people who really did the initial things on um, uh, a new version of, I mean, we, the origin of capitalism is very much uh, in the UK. Um, uh, I think we haven't led the way enormously, but of course with progressive capitalism, we've now got a chance to um, lead the way again. Okay, yes. Yes, sir. Yeah. So, coming from the wrong end. Yeah. Keep keep going, and then you. Then I'll go. 
So when you finish, you can pass the microphone along okay. for space. Hi. Um, my name is Aderbao. Um, I'm a student. I, I wonder how progressive capitalism will treat tax havens. And, um, and also, um, do you expect that uh, innovation and, and training can bring out economic growth, uh, an economic growth that the economy needs? because uh, there is a strong tendency into stagnation, and without a bubble or another historical event, it seems quite uh, unlikely that you know, the current situation will change. Um, yeah, I think, I think uh, you can. I think uh, we've, we've too much in the past just seen economics as being about allocation of capital and labor. Uh, and we've forgotten that you have to create uh, the profit opportunities. You, you can have a great system of allocating capital uh, and labor to the most profitable areas. Uh, but if uh, you don't have any profitable areas, which is where, where you are in many developing countries, although they're very small, uh, it doesn't get you very far. So I think one of the biggest um, arguments against the neoliberal approach is really companies play very, very little part in this. Uh, companies by and large treat it as black boxes which uh, just simply take their perfect information and turn it into the totally right production. Uh, any idea of entrepreneurship, uh, the, the skills and capabilities of firms are ignored. Um, I think uh, my model puts training and the national system of innovation absolutely in the middle of it. And I think you can say there's quite a lot of empirical evidence. Well, certainly on training of technicians, I can give you the references of, um, of, of studies which show uh, there, was a, there was a guy, I think he was at um, LSE, called Professor Sig Price, who did in the 80s and 90s, did some brilliant studies in which he just took, uh, in very specific areas, he took British companies and Dutch companies and uh, Belgian companies, and he just compared productivity in, in a very narrow sector. Uh, and he had very good evidence that the quality of the technicians played a big part in this, uh, so that you would just have badly maintained machines, machines not being used for the right purpose, not the proper feed systems in. Uh, and so training of technicians clearly uh, relates to productivity. And innovation um, is absolutely central. I mean, we will not be able, we cannot compete against the Chinese on the basis of low costs in most industries, which are certainly in ones which are labor-intensive. There's no way we can compete against them. Uh, when I used to go to China as a minister, their wage costs were 5%, 10% of ours. To, today, they're probably higher, 15 20%, but no more. Uh, that means you cannot compete on a labor-intensive industry. Uh, you have to do it by having greater innovation uh, and going into areas which are more complicated and difficult, sophisticated, require greater technical and organizational skills, uh, and that's where the innovation becomes very important. Okay. Next question, then I'll go upstairs. <laughs> um, hi there. My, my name's Rob. I'm an economics teacher. I'm just, I'd like to echo the sentiment that came from the front row, I think, a few questions ago. Um, I think the confusion that I have, and I think that what's coming in the same question, is that the progressive capitalism that you describe, uh, forgive me, but you say, it's, you say it hasn't happened yet, but it, it, 
I don't see any difference between what you describe and what we are currently living in. You've got, uh, you support a capitalist system, but an interventionist government that essentially provides the correct outcomes. But that's what, that's what Thatcher would have thought she was doing. That's what, Gordon, that's what Brown and Blair thought they were doing, and it's what the current government think, thinks that they're doing. So I'd, I don't see any difference, and maybe you could clarify exactly what you think the government is going to do, rather than you being in that position to choose those outcomes, because we're going to have to live with whatever government is, it puts in, is put into that position. So your system, I think, is exactly what we're living in, this, the sort of thing that we're, we're running into a problem with. Perhaps you well, could clarify what is the exact I'll, I'll, difference. I think I, I should have. I mean, obviously, I didn't make this clear. I mean, the, all the issues I've raised uh, about how financial markets are not working and exploiting uh, the investors, that we do not have a good system of corporate governance, uh, that our technician training system is wrong and doesn't work, uh, that our national system of innovation uh, is not as good as it should be, these are all failings of the current system. Um, can, I, can I just so yeah. that's that's correct in hindsight. So Brown would have thought deregulation of the sector, which now led to this, was also the exact what you are currently what you're describing is exactly what they thought they were doing at the time. No, no, Big absolute, bang, so, absolutely not. That, the the whole point of the uh, neoliberal philosophy is regulations and control of markets is not necessary. The greatest statement of this was Alan Greenspan, uh, head of the Federal Reserve, saying, we've tried regulations, they never work. That, that was the whole philosophy of the period. Now, we didn't go that far. We said what we want is a light touch. But the, the signal we sent to regulators and others was, these, these financial markets, great success story of Britain, don't mess it up uh, by regulation or control. Uh, so, no, we... Um, we certainly didn't do anything on technical education properly. Uh, as I say, we did do quite a lot of, on the national system uh, of innovation. And um, uh, corporate governance, we went along with what, what we and pretty well everyone thought was uh, the best system, which was on the Cadbury report, where you would have an independent chairman and then lots of independent directors. Um, and these, this way, uh, you would control companies. Uh, it turned out to be it didn't. it didn't. It didn't work. And it didn't work because, as a whole, the independent direct... Well, it actually had some negative effects, which we had on the board of companies. Because to be independent, you had to show that, you know, you, you were not the brother of the chairman and you hadn't worked in that company and so on and so forth you actually ended up with lots of independent directors uh, sitting on the boards of banks who had no idea about banking. Um, in any case, who were appointed and paid by the chief executive. Uh, and it didn't work. I, I mean, I think this is still one where public opinion is way behind uh, the reality of the situation. But the answer is, look at performance. And it didn't work. So all the areas I've been talking about, what I'm suggesting... Uh, is, is just clearly different from what we were doing or what was happening at that point. Now, the question is, I think the difficult question is, well, why didn't you do something? And the answer is because business community, the politicians, above all the economists, said, we think this is the best system. We think neoliberalism uh, is 
the best way to do this. This is what our textbooks tells you is the best way to run an economy. There, wasn't, there was no one, no one putting forward an alternative view. Uh, and uh, yes, you could say you should have, you should have been smarter, uh, but, but there were very, very few people who, who got it right. And I think you'll find there's a, there's a very good quote from John Stuart Mill, which he says, it is extraordinary how in certain periods a view takes hold as to what is the right way to do things. And only people with superb intelligence and courage can break out of that, even though uh, shortly after that period, everyone agrees the opinion was absurd. Uh, and if you look at it, look, look at the period since the war. Uh, after the war, we all thought um, that Keynesian views, that planning, uh, that a mixed economy was the way to go. Now, people, people were let, more or less in that field, but there was no one talking about totally free markets. Then we had the, the stagflation of, of the 60s and 70s, and everyone realized you couldn't, that model wasn't working. I think they then made mistakes about saying it's something to do with Keynesianism, where it wasn't. It was to do with the rather foolish use of Keynesian ideas. Uh, and most people said we need something different. Neoliberalism came and filled that gap and we've been living in that world ever since. But I think the time has come to, to change it. And if I could just follow up that question for a second, because um, I think this is quite an important issue as to how radical your proposals are. Because right. when, when you've mentioned a few things like um, the training system or the corporate governance system or the national system of innovation and so on, couldn't one say that this is what you're asking for is kind of incremental improvement of what we've got um, rather than some radical break with, with the past. I, I just wonder how, how you'd respond to that. How, in other words, how radical are your proposals? Um, uh, well, I'm, I'm deeply suspicious. Uh, when, when it always seemed to me in government, when, when ministers said, I want a really radical uh, uh, policy, it usually meant they haven't the faintest clue what to do um, and I don't believe that saying I want a radical policy makes any sense unless you analyse the situation and say it's completely wrong. Now, if you, if you look at the whole system and you say capitalism is, is terrible, let's go back to a nice command and control, let's have some national planning, that's your radical policy. Um, I think the thing to do is to analyse the system, see where it's going wrong, and deal with those problems. Right. Yeah, okay. Let's go to the floor. Uh, and there's rather a lot of evidence that no, no, suggests right. that's a better policy. Okay. Yes. Um, well, I don't mind. You go first, then, and then, then your neighbour. Hi. My name is Matt. I'm a student here at the ASE. Thank you very much, Lord Sainsbury, uh, for the interesting analysis. I have a question with regards to the financial system. Would you... Sorry, here. Um, uh, right. <laughs> uh, what is your take on um, taxing the trade-off shares, i.e. Financial, financial transaction tax, as proposed, for example, by uh, Minister Schäuble in Germany, um, to reduce the myopic behavior of markets and, to the same token, obviously, reward long-term shareholding? Thank you very much. Um, I, I think there's much to be said for this, but, of course, everyone has to do it at the same time, which makes it very difficult. Uh, it's clearly uh, there is a lot to be said for trying to 
uh, stop this huge turnover of shares. I don't know what other people feel, but I, th- I think the whole idea of people in the city uh, programming computers uh, to, keep a, to essentially keep tabs on all share prices, find minute differences, uh, and then in com- the computer is programmed to find those, spot them, uh, buy and sell some shares quickly, and move on. I mean, uh, I mean, is this really what you, th- you think people should be making money out of the markets about? I don't. I think this is a business about trying to assess um, properly the performance of companies, and there's far too much turnover of shares. Probably uh, you shouldn't turn them over more than a third every year. Uh, of course, it's a very good way of making money, because if you keep turning it over, the poor investor uh, loses out on this. Um, so I'm rather in favor of transaction tax. But you can't say, ah, oh, financial markets will have a transaction ta- tax if someone else can do the same job without a transaction tax. So you, you've got to get an na- international agreement. Just as a follow-up, isn't that the same argument they make about executive compensation also? Because if we do it, then we don't get the best capital? Um, no, because I think, I think um, one, one case, it's very clearly the case, as I was trying to explain on the executive pay, uh, this is in a sense... Um, everyone, in a sense, uh, conniving at a system like this. Um, and it's, it's actually very... I mean, if, if, you, if you're interested in the history of this, uh, there's some very interesting work which looks at... This, this admittedly, is financial markets, uh, which looks back at uh, the ratio of finan- payments in financial executives uh, from the time of the... just before the Great Depression in America... Uh, through to the current time. And it compares uh, financial executives against um, people of similar educational uh, qualifications. And just before uh, the Depression, they were getting twice. Then as uh, the New Deal came in, it went down to very near uh, the same by the, the, out, well, the outbreak of war and then uh, in the 60s. And it stayed very similar. And then as deregulation came, it came up uh, so that um, it got pretty close to where it had been um, in before the Depression. Uh, and I think you'll see over the next few years it will come back slightly. Uh, and that correlates almost exactly with an index uh, of uh, regulation. So I, th- I think uh, it's quite possible that it will, will come back and we should, should try and stop that happening again. Okay. One, one other question. Uh, Sam DeZoyser, I'm a tax advisor. Uh, my question uh, is about fairness, and to me it sounds a little bit of a, a weasel word in that um, fairness seems to be whomever is in power decides uh, what it, it, it means. So if you look at South Africa or Zimbabwe, um, taking farms off white farmers to, to put them in the hands of black owners, um, has not worked out uh, very well and, and has created, in South Africa has created a, um, a, 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 a black um, a class of, of black entrepreneurs that just happened to become fabulously wealthy simply by, by uh, being in the right place at the right time. Um, and uh, I, I'd just like to ask um, how it can, uh, how fairness can, can really be uh, um, a useful measure of, of value. Um, well, I, I, I tried to give a definition of this as being 
uh, that rewards that people get um, are in some way calibrated to the contribution that they make to the economy. Uh, that was my kind of definition. I agree. If you just take the word fairness, you, anyone can interpret um, uh, that to me, give you whatever answer you want. Um, uh, so I think it's like many of these words. Unless you actually define what, what you mean by it, uh, it doesn't make, make much sense. But I'm, I'm giving a definition of fairness as being the rewards you get relate to the contribution that you make to the economy. Very difficult to establish what that is, but, but at least you know that what you're trying to do uh, probably uh, is what people want and is actually an efficient way to run your economy. Um, I've just got a, a kind of um, repeat question uh, that uh, asks about whether you have any views about tax havens, which I think somebody did mention earlier. Is that something, oh, right. is something that um, you feel is, is, a, is a, a bad thing, that should be, something should be done about it? I, mean, I, I, don't, I don't think this can be open to doubt. I mean, we do not, you do not want to have tax havens, and you want people to pay the amount of tax that they should pay. And this whole system of letting these tax havens uh, exist uh, seems to me to be um, outrageous, really. Okay. I mean, but it's, of course, difficult because there's no question, again, unless all countries get together and stop it, uh, it's quite difficult to do. But whether you want to have them, uh, there can't be any question, you don't want tax havens. I think probably we'll have time for one, one more question. Oh, yes. My name's Linda Murray. I'm from Wits University in Johannesburg. I'm curious to know a little bit more about your work with professional bodies. Uh, you said that you're working with them to look at um, standards, uh, setting yeah. standards. What I'm curious to know about is if those professional bodies are also working with the training institutions, universities, etc., to set those standards, and if so, how that relationship is working out. Um, what, we're de what we're dealing with is, of course, mainly technicians. Um, and uh, part of that, obviously, is the other two bits of this, uh, which are how do you pay people while they get the qualifications and having places uh, to do this. Um, and this has to be, I think, FE colleges, essentially. Um, and I think uh, we've got to find a way to incentivize FE colleges to take this on. Uh, in the meantime, there is an extraordinarily good initiative called University Technical Colleges, um, which has been set up. I think it only has two, but I think there are 23 in the pipeline, which is indeed essentially uh, taking uh, kids at the age of 14 and giving them uh, a very good technical education uh, so that they'll come out and, subject to a bit of experience, become, become registered technicians. Um, and I think this is the last sort of bit of the building block um, in terms of how do you put a technical education system together. Okay, we're almost at 8 o'clock, so um, I think we have to draw the event to a close. And as I mentioned earlier, Lord Sainsbury is happy to sign any books if, if anybody wants to come up and, and do that. So could, could I ask you to join me in thanking Lord Sainsbury for his excellent talk? Thank you.